Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody uh it's another episode of the three questions and it's a special one because we're talking to somebody who has been um just sort of an artistic landmark for most of my life in so many different venues and media and he's funny and smart and cantankerous and talented and he's john lurie and i feel very lucky to get to talk to you john <laughs> I became, what was that cantankerous in talent what was it <laughs> so. yeah i don't i don't know it just, just it came out but come on wouldn't you say cantankerous is a little bit apt yeah <laughs> most of the best people are most of, if you don't have if your bullshit uh, tolerance is low you end up being called cantankerous have you always been that way yes yeah and got worse I mean, you're supposed to get better. You're supposed to get more patient and understanding. Like, Yeah. Mellow with age, as they say. I think what age does, too, is it does sort of makes you pick your battles. Well, you also I mean, you also you also pick your people. You just allow less and less and less yes. people into your life. It's just like until until it's just you in a room because you just can't stand anybody anymore. <laughs> uh, don't tell me that. Uh, that's, you know, I, I, especially with this COVID shit going on. I like, I mean, I already was when the COVID, I was one of those people that was afraid to admit that I actually was kind of enjoying it. You know what I oh, mean? Oh, I'm, yeah. I, I think it's a good lesson for people. It's like, if you can't learn to be alone in a room. Were you always kind of uh, a little bit reclusive? Like even as a kid, were you sort of? Or, no, I was really gregarious and went out to nightclubs every night, you know, but that I was reclusive before that. I was a hermit before that. And then I, you know, discovered drugs and sex and nightclubs. And then I went out every night for years and then stopped, you know. Just sick of it? No, my body fell apart at one point and I stopped. You know, my body really fell apart. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, that's that's lucky for us. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> we still no. have this curmudgeon around here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you still are putting beauty into the world. You're, you know, you have. Thank and you. That's in- I actually, I'm, you know, my sister makes these earrings that are just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And my brother's incredibly talented. And my parents, I don't believe it's in our DNA that we're talented, but they obviously 
instilled something, a childlike thing in the way that we work. And then my mother taught, she was a decent painter and taught uh, art in Liverpool where the, where, you know, where the Beatles went, but not, not at the same time. But she never taught me anything like perspective or shading. But she did somehow instill that childlike wonder thing in, in, in our work. And so you're not afraid to kind of try different things that because I still haven't I mean I still don't really have a career I haven't even decided at this age what I really do I did do music for a while but then I got ill and I couldn't do it anymore so now I paint and I paint all day long like 10 hours 12 hours a day and it's like I create a world that I go to and I just finished one and sent it off to be scanned and it was such a drag to not be able to go to the world that this painting had created. Now it's gone. Now i got to start another one. I don't want to start another one. It's wonderful to hear that you are uh, that you consider yourself an unfinished work because I don't think a lot of people do that. I think they get to a certain point and they're just kind of like, this is what I am and, and that's it. That's such a drag. No, people get trapped in their lives and then, they, you know, and then you got a mortgage and, and you know, a family and the, and you can't get out of it, you know. You, did you go to college at all? No. You know, my father was like really um, an academic, actually, and he would have wanted me to go to college, but he died when I was 17, and so I didn't go to college because oh. actually I colored in my college boards. My college boards were like pharaohs chasing, uh, you know, <laughs> Cows, or you, you just know, drew a I, pattern into the I just, I just, I just yeah, drew yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably worth a lot of money now. They should have <laughs> saved it. <laughs> Do you think it was because of the loss of your father, and because he, to you, I mean, you describe him as an academic. Do you think that that was like you couldn't go to that space because of the loss of your dad? It was a different time, you know. Like, so I'm born in '52, so it's like 1968. You know, when I would have gone to college 67 and it was just, you know, it was it was mayhem then, you know, and it was all about music, too. And so it was like and I was playing harmonica already at like 15 or something. So and I played with Ken Heat and John Lee Hooker and I played with Mississippi Fred McDowell. And it's like, well, you know, I'm going to play music. That's what I'm going to do. So how does that happen? How does it how does a 15 year old kid pick up the harmonica and end up on stage with John Lee Hooker in a matter of years, a few years. We we were living in Worcester, and my uncle had a place on, on 57th Street right next to Carnegie Hall, and Ken Heat was playing there with John Lee Hooker. And so we had nowhere to go after the concert, and we were out in the corner of 57th and 7th, and they came out, Bob Height, and not John Lee Hooker, but the guys in the band. And I said, oh, hi, I play harmonica. And their harmonica, Alan Wilson, who was actually a genius music. He's the guy, who, um, you know, going up country and you, you'll know. So he's really was kind of brilliant. And it's a shame he died so young. But he had just died. And I said, I play the harmonica and I'll hitchhike to wherever you're playing next to prove that I'm serious. You know, and it's like a different time. They said, OK, we're playing in Philadelphia at the Spectrum tomorrow. So we hitchhiked to the Spectrum. Is this you, you and Evan? Me and Evan and Steve Piccolo, who was in the first lounge of this band. And um, we hid in the basement of the Spectrum. And then around time, we went up to found the dressing room. And I said, oh, you're here. And they had me play for a second. They said, good. 
and then <laughs> and then they had me come up on stage for the first two songs. So I'm like 16 years old, and suddenly you're standing in front of like 20,000 people. It was just very bizarre. Was that like a galvanizing moment for you, or was it just sort of, did it feel like an odd one-off? No, it was just an odd thing. It was just a very odd thing, yeah. Because then I went back to, you know, Worcester, Massachusetts, and slept on people's couches again, you know. And uh, what what transitioned to saxophone for you? Nobody believes this story, but I'm going to tell you. I'm 17, and I played harmonica. I played. I was serious. I played well, you know. And I and then and then I was in Worcester, and Michael Avery, who was a great drummer and was a you know a friend of my sister's, he they came to Worcester to play. And he came, to, he was playing with Babe Pino on harmonica, and it was like these older blues guys. So I'm going to, you know, I asked to sit in, but it's Babe Pino's a harmonica player, so this is kind of frowned on that I'm asking to sit in, but Michael's close enough to my sister where he says yes. And I don't know anything about being on stage then, but... I'm playing harmonica on stage with these guys, but they didn't, they gave me a mic with no monitor. You know what? You know, so I couldn't hear myself back, but I don't know. So I'm playing harder and harder. And so finally I'm playing so hard. It's like one, one breath per note. It's just like, cause I can't hear myself, you know, and I make a complete fool out of myself and they're all, you know, making snide comments about me afterwards. And I'm just broken. I'm just completely broken. And I'm walking around Worcester, Massachusetts, at four o'clock in the morning and I see this guy kind of a fat black guy a little strange sort of walking down the street with a wheel wheelbarrow full of dirt and I, there's nobody to talk to and it's a different time and so I started talking to him and he tells me he's just seen a, an angel a statue turn into an angel and fly away and he tells me in such a way like it's something you should try one day <laughs> and he's fascinating he's He's a little nuts, obviously, but he's also kind of this something angelic about him and really thoughtful. And so we're talking and then we go back to his house and his mother's asleep. So I have to be quiet. But he gives me a saxophone for real. He gave me a saxophone and a bicycle. He says, just bring it back in a week. And that's how I started playing the saxophone. I decided I was not going to learn. Because on harmonica, I'd, I'd sounded too much like Little Walter. And on guitar, I sounded too much like Hendrix. I didn't sound like them, but I was too influenced. So on saxophone, I was going to just start from scratch. I wasn't even going to get a finger chart. I wasn't going to, you know, and I would just go and blow, you know, at, at, at like three in the morning on the top of Newton Hill, I would go and play there. And then one night, I hop on the top of this hill playing, and I hear this rumbling. And so I kind of, it's, you know, pitch dark on the top of the hill, and I go and I duck back into the bushes because something's going on. And it's a bunch of cops on those little, you know, those motorcycles, the passenger seat motorcycle thing. That's yeah, a, with a sidecar. Yeah, sidecar. And it's a bunch of cops, five cops, driving in circles, yelling Yahoo and shooting their guns up in the air. <laughs> I don't know why. How did I get to that story? I don't know. But I mean- I'm a great guest. I'm a great <laughs> guest because you don't even have to think of the next question. You can just coast along and I'll just babble. That is that is pretty good. If, I mean, if you want, I'll just I'll just hang up and you can just keep going. I always wonder what it's like. It's like you're host, you know, you guys are hosting a thing on TV, and this person comes on and they're so nervous, and they just kind of go, uh, you know, it must be just hell. No, it, it doesn't. Yeah, and it's most of the time it's kind of darling. 
You know, it's kind of cute when, like, I remember specifically Sam Neill, uh, you know, the guy from Jurassic Park. and He was shy? Terrified. Terrified. Huh. And I don't know. I don't know. He He's now in New Zealand. He lives on a sheep farm. And... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I knew that for yeah. some weird and he, reason. He posts videos of like him and his duck, and they're hilarious. He also makes wine, I think, down there. But he was terrified and like looked to me in the commercial break, like, "God, please help me!" And I just was like, "Sweetheart, it's fine. It's uh, you know, I like to tell people when they're nervous about things. You know, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal." I'm walking, he's talking to me and I walk him back to the curtain when he's done and I, and he's really nervous. And he says to me, was that okay? And I said, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. None of it matters. matters. It's just, it's all out into the air and it's all gone. And, and I said, and I don't, I've never, as long as I've been doing this kind of stuff, I have never seen anything that makes me really believe that it puts butts into seats at a movie or or sells albums, you know, like when somebody comes on at the end and plays, like Lounge Lizards did. Years or ago. even changes how people feel about yeah. the person. It's Unless like, there's yeah. like a really big event, you know, like, um, you know, like after, uh, what's his name? He, uh, Hugh Grant, was that who had the, the, the Divine Brown issue? You know, he like went on the Tonight Show after he had, he was caught with a, yeah, I knew he got caught with something. Yeah, a, a prostitute, a, a, and, yeah. and he went on afterwards to talk about it, and that's a huge event, you know. Like, but most of the time, although the only one that does matter is books. You can sell books by going on TV, oh, yeah? but that's because the margin's I'm, so thin on books. If I see somebody go on TV, like on a talk show, and then and I seem really nervous, I start I start rooting for them, you know. In fact, next time I go on a TV show, I'm going to go out there and pretend I'm really terrified and then, like, rise to the occasion. So everybody goes, he, he was able to say a word. He's, that's, yeah. I'm so proud he of him. He did his own little six-minute Horatio Alger story. <laughs> All right. Well, how do you, when do you start getting brave enough to play saxophone in front of people? Oh. You know, I had a band on harmonica and stuff. And, like, and then I didn't play saxophone. Moved to London. And I used to play on the street, like, you know, the buskers, it's a thing, you know, there's a lots of, you know, there's, and that's when I really started playing in front of people was out in the street, because it's kind of like, you know, outside of Tottenham Court Tube Station or Piccadilly Circus or, or something like that. It's kind of like playing in front of people, you know what I mean? It's like, and the first day I did a, I did a, a, a saxophone solo thing in, in a gallery in London. That was the first thing I did. And. Are, when you're when you're busking, are you playing? Are you just kind of improvising, or are you playing uh, standards? Or yeah, I would improvise or stand. I mean, you get more money if you play Sweet Georgia Brown or stand. You know, you get more money like that. But I would mostly was just playing to play. I was, you know, it didn't seem to annoy people too much. And then I discovered this thing, especially on the weekends. You know, the football, the you know, soccer. They'd have these, on the weekends, all the fans would come through. They've drunken and they've just come from the game and they're drunk. And, they, you know, they'd sort of play our team song and they'd be, you know. And so I started pulling this thing where I would have them stand behind my case 
And then all the other fans would come and start throwing money into my case because they're, you know, and then till the other team's fans came by and a fist fight would start. <laughs> and then I grabbed my case and moved to the next corner. That worked. I got more money like that than, than any other way was like. And then one night I got arrested where and they're so polite. You know, the policeman comes up to you and says, you have to not play tonight. We're going to round up all the buskers if you're playing here in an hour. And I didn't believe them because they were so polite, you know, compared to like New York cops. It was, And then they came and they politely arrested me. <laughs> and I was arrested with four one-armed, one-man bands, you know, the guys with the drum on the back and the guitar and the harmonica and the cymbals between the knees. Yeah, like Dick Van Dyke from uh, Mary Poppins. I never saw Mary Poppins. but I I, I would imagine. He does a whole, he's got like 18 instruments on him. Like, it's it's impossible. Like, he couldn't really be playing all of them. But, you know, but yeah, yeah, like that. But these guys could all do that, you know. And then a couple other guys, you know, who did... And they arrested all of us and put us all in a cell for the night. And I thought there was going to be like this camaraderie of like, okay, we're all street musicians, but they all hated each other. And they all hated me even worse because I was a Yank. So they, it was, I thought, you know, we were all going to get along and yeah. And, and um, they all just complained the whole night. This is Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast, the promo, and in 30 seconds, I'm going to tell you why you should check out the show. I, the host, Scott Aukerman, have a lighthearted conversation with famous celebrities like John Hamm, Allison Williams, Phoebe Bridgers, Bob Odenkirk, just to name a few. Things go a little off the rails when different eccentric characters drop by to be interviewed as well. Each week is a blend of conversations and character work from your favorite comedians as well as some new hilarious voices. Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast. Listen every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Can't you tell my loves are growing? You uh, when you, when you're, uh, what, what age are you when you're in London? 20, 21, 20? Yeah. 20? No, a little and older, you- 22 maybe. Are you thinking of the future? Like, are you worrying about, like, I got to figure out what I'm going to do with myself? Or is it just because of the time and your age? Yeah. I I almost never. I mean, it's a much harder time for kids now where they got to decide the whole rest of their life. But but I was even, I mean, because my dad died and because I was already kind of pretty wild. I I constantly, I mean, I hitchhiked cross country with, you know, $10 in my pocket and, uh, that's before I played the saxophone. And then, you know, I went to London with no money. And uh, 
Is your mom worried by this? No, my mom was weird. What happened? My dad died. He was 17, and me and Evan were pretty wild. And we'd go home, you know, for a couple of days to eat and stuff. But we're not old. And then she sort of, and we sort of, you know, we're pretending we're independent. We don't need her. And she's pretending she's independent and doesn't need us. And then she called our bluff, and she moved. She's from Wales. And she moved back to Wales when me and Evan were like 16 and 17. <laughs> we had nowhere to go. Whoa, shit. Now, when you were in London, did you see her? Did you? Yeah, we'd go you know, to, I'd go to Wales and, you know. I mean, Evan talked me into coming over. He was living in a squat and he made it sound so glamorous. And so, <laughs> okay. So, and it was terrible. And uh, we'd go to, you know, visit my mom, eat some food, you know, and then, and, you know, take the train back to London, start playing on the street again. And dance classes. I, I used to play dance classes, too. You know, step brush land, step brush land, step brush land. You know, like, you mean you would you would accompany the, the yeah. dance class? Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know if you were saying you were a dancer too. Now that would be terrible. <laughs> I, I'm saving that for the later part. My dance <laughs> yeah, career right. will be later. Yeah, that'll be your real renaissance when you come back as as the new Martha Graham. Yeah. Uh, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, how do, is, do you go from London to New York? Is that sort of, yeah. you know? Yeah. And this is early 70s, right? Let's see. I went to London. Oh, and then back to Boston. And then back to London. And then to New York. And then my horn got stolen. So then I moved back to Boston for a while. Wow. Was it the same horn that you had gotten from the guy on the street? No, no. I gave that back after a week. Then I sold... I had. I had a really nice guitar and a really nice Les Paul. From, and then I sold that and bought a saxophone, a good saxophone with that. And then moved. I was living on 14th Street and I was working at the Plaza Hotel. Mm-hmm. And um, Doing what? I was the night housekeeping dispatcher. Okay. So like if Milton Berle wanted extra pillows, I would yep. send somebody down there. But there was they really nothing to do. So I would just extra practice. Extra pillows for the- his enormous cock. I keep hearing, I've heard more about Willem, uh, Will, Willem, see, Willem has an enormous cock. So he does, automatically, yeah, that is, yeah. When that movie where he played Jesus, yeah. It's in the movie? Yeah. I didn't, We were walking around in Morocco looking for trouble, and we go to take a piss in an alley, and I was just like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. What do you do with, is there enough blood to fill that thing up? Yeah, don't you get dizzy? <laughs> he does get dizzy. <laughs> yeah, no, I've had a few friends like that. And, the, you know, and it's like their little secret. And then you see it and it's like, although I've had other friends, too, who it's not a secret. It's It gets mentioned and it becomes their thing. Like, oh, you want to see it? Here you go. Um, can't do that anymore either. No, you can't. Willem used to say, I think it gives me a false sense of confidence. Yeah, because he's not like a large person either. No, he's you know, he's not very tall. Yeah. God, he's been good in the last few years. Don't he's you think fantastic. Like, he's should, always he was, great. You know, I don't know if he was always fantastic, because in the last few years, it's like the range has been kind of remarkable. Yeah. Well, now, speaking of acting, are you in, is it in your head all this time, you know, throughout your life that at some point you're going to be an actor? No. No? And I'm still not, I never was an actor. Well. I, no, I just showed up and so I did these things, but, you know. I mean, look, with music and with painting, I got some chops. I mean, I work on it, you know. With acting, you know, I can I can be good. I got a natural thing, but I never I never paid my dues with it. I never I never had any technique and I, you know, like 
when I was on that show Oz for a little while, and, and I mm-hmm. was awful. <laughs> I really didn't know what I was doing, you know. Plus, I, I got advanced Lyme disease, and it was the beginning of that, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I'd have four lines, and I couldn't remember them. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really scary. Yeah, because that's – when you can't remember your lines that, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's a cush job. You know, acting – anybody that talks about acting being hard, I always feel like, please – Take it, you know. No, but if you get nervous, I mean, if you make it hard, then you're not good. But the best actor, I mean, but if you get nervous, then then it's really, you know, then it's terrible, you know. Yeah, yeah. But like in Last Temptation, the best actors were the Moroccan extras who had no idea what was going on. They were great, you know. Yeah. And all these people, like especially like there was a lot of people on the, and the cast who weren't really actors; they were more musicians that Marty had brought in. And they would put so much effort into like trying to be a good actor, and it just, it just ruins it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think acting is something you can e- you can either do it or not do it. And to me, like I don't, and I because I don't really have, you know, I came up from improv, which is just make it up as you go along, which you you can do, you know, you can you can do that your whole career. You just basically are waiting for things to approach you. And then it's just a question of decisions or problem solving. You know, you get a job and can, okay, I'll take the job. And then you get there and you're like, well, I got to figure out a way. And, you know, and I have always just felt like I, I, they keep paying me to do this. So I guess I'm doing a good job, <laughs> yeah. you know? I mean, because I never, because the notion of like, did I do well on that? I, 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 I rely perhaps maybe too much on other people's input on it, but I do feel like, well, it's a communication thing, and if I'm communicating it well, people will let me know that. And if I'm not, they'll let me know that too. Because I guess I just my own barometer of what I'm doing is too unreliable. It never, pay, it never paid off for me. I mean, with music, you know, we finish a show and I know it was great, and the audience was, or you know, people burst into the dressing room and say that was amazing, and you know it wasn't good. Yeah, I know when it's good, and that's it's between me and the thing. And the same with paintings, but with acting, I would never know was I any good. I don't know, and who decides? And uh, never, I was never that comfortable with it, you know. Yeah, it's just. I mean, Jack Nicholson. I think why he's so great, he's so comfortable with it, and he also seems to not care. You know, it's like that's what makes him so great. I think if you really don't care, you, you kind of go, you go further in a way. Yeah, I think so. It is. It's an attitude and it is. But it also uh, and I've gotten uh, in trouble with actors when I say this. But like to me, acting is lying. You know, you're trying to convince somebody of something that you're not. And it's the same way that when you would lie to your mother about something, you would learn to regulate your delivery. You would learn what details to add. You would learn, you know, like how to gesture to be believable that you hadn't wrecked the car or whatever. And it's the same thing. And then people are like, no, no, it's the search for truth. Like, no, it's not the search for truth because Willem Dafoe is not Jesus. You know, it's, <laughs> he's, he's making, trying to, trying to trick you into thinking. But, that you know, Jesus. but then there's, you see someone like Meryl Streep and, and, and sometimes she's so good that she ruins, she ruins the movie. You know, because <laughs> you're just yeah. like, damn. Yeah, you're just thinking about Meryl Streep. Yeah, she takes yeah. you out of the experience of watching the thing because she's so good. 
Well, let's back up because uh, we, we sort of jumped right over lounge lizards. Um, did you have a real strong idea what you wanted to do with the band? No. I mean, the band started... I was playing and I had this idea because I was very influenced with classical music, but also um, like music from like the pygmies and Tibet and, and then jazz. And I wanted to figure out a way to make it all work together. And I, I kind of began to think I was never going to actually have that, that I could never quite get there. Or maybe that wasn't even possible to do that, where it's kind of like the melody, the rhythm was more African or funk, and then and then the melodies were more like classical. And I thought maybe it's not possible to do what you're talking about with other people, because I was just playing solo, and that kind of worked. And then um, I didn't have a band. And uh, I had written this music. I wanted to do this movie. I was writing this movie, Fatty Walks, and so I started writing the music for it. And um, Jim Farad asked what a good band to open for, for Peter Gordon's Love of Life Orchestra on a Monday night at Haraz. And I said, oh, my band. But I didn't have a band. <laughs> and uh, See, that's what I'm saying. You fake it till you make it. Let's, let's not promote lying to the kids. I think this, <laughs> is <laughs> this, this podcast is for old men. Yeah. It's uh, don't. Yeah, yeah. But um, and then we we used the music I was writing using going to use for the movie and threw this thing together. And I got lucky with who it was. It was Anton Fear, who's was oh, wow. a really good drummer. And he also yeah. kind of, you know, we were such punks. Then. And I was serious about the saxophone playing, but not about about the band. My brother on on, on he played Farfisa organ on the first and Ardo Lindsay on guitar and Piccolo on bass. And it was a good combination of people. And it just came together. Like on stage, we had one rehearsal and then it came, you know, and then suddenly we were stars, you know. Oh, wow. Like, how long was it from that first show till you feel like all of New York is talking about? Well, it, right so away, much. all of New York was talking about us. Really? And then, wow. and then right away, they stopped. As the music got better, New York stopped talking about it. Because we were kind of, you know, <laughs> we were doing these kind of like stripper tunes and, you know, but like with Ardo and, kah, 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 you know, and the, dan, 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 you know, like that kind of stuff. So Andy Warhol would be there. And, you know, it was like that in the first month. And then as the music got better and less kind of campy, they all start, they all stopped coming. So it was a couple year period as the music got better. <laughs> so finally there was like nine people would come to the show because you know, the music got yeah, better yeah now but I mean the fan, the the band did grow to where it had a world audience and and you know and so that that change tell me about that change do you think like were you enjoying it at the time or were you hesitant to step into the mouth of this beast. No, because it was slow. I mean, you know, we started this kind of punk jazz band and then, we got, you know, we got, and we put out a record and it was a really miserable experience with the record company and they just would put us in these horrible situations and and, and then it fell apart. And I started another band with Tony Garnier and Evan and it was kind of getting to be more like of a jazz band, but we weren't that good at playing jazz at that time. So then that sort of, and then I started this other much bigger band, like by 84, 85. And the music started, the writing started getting better, the playing started, and it started to really become something around then. And uh, by that time we had, you know, a fan base in, in Japan and in, in Europe 
but not in the States. We never really took off in the States. So we would go, and that's how I made a living for years, was we would go tour two or three times a year in, in Japan or in Europe. And that was a blast. I mean, especially when, as, as it gets better, I mean, you know, and, and it sort of hovers off the ground and you're playing, oh, that's just great, you know. That, but this, you know, recording and, and, you know, there'd always be like one day to make a record and we'd never really get it right and, and the record company would be screwing you and all that. That was all horrible. But the live gigs, whew, that's just just better than anything really and are you painting throughout no, this just whole a little bit like you know i mean i painted always because you did some you did some album covers yeah yeah i mean i would always paint but never like you know sit there. i mean I, now i paint 10 12 hours a day i mean i can't stop myself almost but then you know i practice the thing i would do every day was practice you got to practice two hours a day i would do that the tv show fishing with john is funny and uncomfortable and, you know, like, and you could feel the tension. You know, like, first of all, you fished your whole life, right? Yeah, well, I used to go fishing with my dad. Yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, me and Willem had actually been fishing a bunch of times and me and Flea used to go fishing. Yeah, that's one thing I am mad about. I love to fish. I'm going fishing with my friends. People will be like, oh, like fishing with John. It'll be like, oh, shit, yeah. Like fishing with John, exactly. Like fishing with John. Well, now you can't go get a cup of coffee in a car. <laughs> That's right. Without somebody thinking you ripped them off. Yeah, I know. But I, I got lucky with the fishing show. I got really lucky where I'd gone fishing with Willem and Liz Comp filmed it because she was in the boat with us. And then I went to play on New Year's Eve with Tom Waits. And then we went fishing the next day and Torton filmed it. And so I had these tapes at home, like home movies, really. And somebody brought them to this Japanese company, and she came back and said they want to they want to make a show, and I was like, really? So then it's like, oh, they're going to give me money, and then I had to do it. And we also had this editor who hated it, so I was like, <laughs> the what editor is this? hated the show. The editor, she just like grimaced, you know, and. and but now it's like, the, it's on the top of her real list, like the things she worked on, but she really hated it. This is Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast, the promo, and in 30 seconds, I'm going to tell you why you should check out the show. I, the host, Scott Aukerman, have a lighthearted conversation with famous celebrities like John Hamm, Allison Williams, Phoebe Bridgers, Bob Odenkirk, just to name a few. Things go a little off the rails when different eccentric characters drop by to be interviewed as well. Each week is a blend of conversations and character work from your favorite comedians as well as some new hilarious voices. Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast. Listen every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Um, do you mind if we talk a little bit about your Lyme disease? No. Um, because I, you know, it's. But who wants to listen to that? But I don't mind talking about it. Well, because uh, because 
you are an artist that is loved by a lot of people uh, and it's affected your work. It's affected your li- the trajectory of your life. It's it's certainly affected the trajectory of your music career. Yeah, no, I had to quit playing saxophone. I couldn't do it yeah. anymore. And um, and what what would happen? Were you just in pain? You know, because no, I mean, there's no, so many. No, it was it was just so. I think it has something to do with the vagal nerve. So you play, because I can play guitar and harmonica now, but I, the saxophone somehow the way the diaphragm presses against the vagal, and it would just set off like. You know, migraine aura and, I mean, the symptoms you can explain are nothing compared to the ones you can't explain. Now, as with many people that suffer from Lyme disease, you spend a lot of time not knowing what the fuck is wrong with you. And when do you come, like, is there a point where you, like, does somebody say, did you ever get bitten by a tick, you know, or, or whatever that you have to go and No, wait? I mean, what I went through, it was like 2000, 2001. And I really thought I was dying. And you get to the point where you modify your symptoms when you go into the doctor because it just sounds too nuts. You know, it's like, well, on Friday, my feet went numb and I couldn't use my left arm. And then on Saturday, everything looked like it was made out of static electricity. And then on Sunday, it felt like I was being stung by bees all over my body. I mean, it's just like... You know how nuts that sounds. So you just, after a while, I went to the Mayo Clinic because I would have these full-on attacks. And I thought I wanted to get monitored while I was having one of those attacks. But the, the Mayo Clinic, well, if you're having an attack, go to the local emergency room where they, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I gave up. I mean, I was real sick and I thought, this is it. I don't know what it is. And, you know, I had, you know, it was MS. It was a rare form of migraines. It was on and on. I mean, I had every diagnosis, but it, none of them were really right. And actually, the closest thing to what was wrong with me was if you put all my symptoms into a, you know, and you look them up, I had Gulf War syndrome. That was the closest thing to what I had. And uh, I gave up. I thought, okay, I'll buy a house up here and, you know, grow old and die because I can't do anything anymore. I got a magazine with real estate, you know, and in the front of this real estate thing was, do you have this, 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 this? And it was like 100 symptoms, and I had all of them. And it's like, yes, well, you may have advanced Lyme disease because it wasn't really a thing yet. And it took like five years before I was 100% certain it was advanced Lyme disease. And I think there's a real similarity, I mean, between like these post-COVID cases. Those symptoms sound very similar to, to the stuff. I think it might just be the immune system. You know, this thing invades your body and your immune system fights it off. But it's such a, a, a huge event that the immune system keeps fighting it. And then it starts attacking things in your own body. That's my that's my theory. So what's but, um, what's your future look like? You got any plans? What are you having for well, dinner? Well, it's hard to figure out because because of the virus and the vaccine and what's going to happen next. Plus, I'm worried, you know, when, when's this going to run? Probably next week, I bet. It, it come out on Tuesday, so it'll either be next Tuesday or maybe the Tuesday after. So it's either before the coup or after the coup? <laughs> it'll be, yeah, exactly. It'll be right before the coup. It'll be pre Because if there really is a coup, I feel like, you know, HBO is going to cancel my show and they're going to be forced to play Duck Dynasty around the clock. <laughs> <laughs> There won't be a coup. I'm a conspiracy theorist. I, I love all that <laughs> shit. So. I just, I mean, and this could just be me being Pollyanna-ish, but I kind of feel like they, they, uh, you know, like, A, there's no future to what they're talking about. Like, you, there's no future to it if, like, you can't, 
you can't say black votes don't matter. You know, I mean, they already feel, you know, that black lives don't matter, but you can't do that. That just isn't sustainable. No, it's not sustainable. But I mean, this whole thing, it comes from two things. One comes from racism and then it comes from Trump's narcissism, which is an unbelievable force. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like this narcissism. It's and which that doesn't doesn't matter that there's no conceivable future for this because he doesn't know anything besides one second in front of one's, you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, yeah. So, no. Somebody said the hit, for him the world is the arc between his, and I think maybe it was borrowed from somebody else. The arc between his fingers and his mouth. Yeah. that's where the world yeah. exists. Yeah. But then they're listening to him. I don't yeah. know. I mean, did, did you ever cross paths with him back in the day? Yeah, I was. Uh, this is probably my greatest work. Where. I, <laughs> when Balthazar opened, yeah, and Keith, it's like a, a bistro, yeah. a big, beautiful bistro. And he was this. there with a friend of mine's wife. They just gotten d- divorced, and he was she was quite beautiful, like a model. And and he was there with her on a date, and he was sort of parading her around the restaurant to show her off. As you asshole. So then he was sitting there, and so I had the waiter bring um, him a glass of their cheapest rosé, <laughs> which he refused. I, I, I bumped into him a couple of times way back, you know. Always with it. I don't see how you can see a mile away that this guy's an asshole. Why? How did he get their support? That's what I, I, I'll never understand. Every fuck, and it's all, you know, and the thing too is it's like white men voted for him like 74% of white men voted for him. But that's what this is more. I mean, this is like white men being afraid of their their privilege taken away seems to be what's driving most most of this. Also, he hates the same thing they hate, which seems to be the biggest force behind it. He hates Hillary Clinton. We hate Hillary. You know, he he hates smart people. We hate smart people. I mean, did you see the thing with they were walking out of the White House like he's packing up and leaving, right? They're walking out with the Lincoln bust and things like that. They were looting the white, you know, it was just like, and and there was a, a uniformed soldier holding the door open for him. It was like. I saw somebody, somebody bringing out a stuffed pheasant, like a taxidermied pheasant. This is how white people loot. I mean, yeah, Jesus. Yeah. And I think they were putting it into a Volvo, if I'm not mistaken. Into a, really? All right. Well, we're coming. I, I want to. I want to wrap it up here. I've kept you long enough. I want to I keep talking. Oh, you do? Well, then we can no, keep I'm talking. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I, I, I was flattered there for a second. Oh, no, you couldn't be flattered. This was fun. Oh, okay. Good. It was, I, and it, it has been fun. And I enjoy, you know, that's what, and I've said this before, with, especially with COVID, like sometimes the, just doing these podcasts, it's a chance to talk to somebody. You know, it's a chance to have a conversation, but I, uh, just to kind of wrap it up, I wonder like. Is there, uh, you know, the because the, the, uh, the three questions is a gimmick here, and the last one is what have you learned? And so I guess, like, if you've learned, is there something you would have done differently? Is there something that you think back and think that was a mistake? Or, I did an article with know, The New Yorker that really fucked up my life terribly because I trusted them. That really fucked up my life. And uh, But I'm not sorry I did it because I'm still proving that I'm not the person in that article. I probably wouldn't have done the show if it wasn't, you know, it's like 
You know, the story about Charlie Parker, Philly Joe Jones throws the symbol at Charlie Parker when he's just starting out and he's so embarrassed that he goes and he woodsheds for, for a year and he just practices and comes back with this. Every terrible thing that happened to me, I got something, a ton out of it, you know? So I, I don't think I, you know, I would redo. I mean, you know, you, you, you get stronger, your soul gets cleaner. You, you just keep cleaning the mirror. I can't imagine. Yeah. I and mean, I went through a bad period, but now it just seems like it's a good period. It's just sort of, oh, God. We, me and me and Nesman, we turn on the TV and the guy, you know, the guide for. Uh, the channel he, guide. Yeah. yeah. TV and it said, guide, painting yeah. with John. And it was like. Nezrin started to cry, and I said, oh, my God, what have I done? But it was kind of like, wow. <laughs> you know? yeah. a, I mean, I made this thing, at, you know, in my pajamas in my house for a dollar, and now it's going to be on HBO. It's kind of, you know. Yeah, it's, well, you mentioned nice- in, the, in the show, you mentioned about seeing your – your face on a on 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 the side of a building on a marquee uh, or something. Billboard, yeah, yeah, and that's I I've been through this. I remember when we would do the Conan show in the early days. You know, we would do the show, and then I'd go home and I would live my life and stuff. But if I was out, say at a bar or a restaurant when the show was on, and above the TV, the bar would put on the show, and I'd see myself above the bar. It would freak me out. Like I would just be like, "What the fuck am I doing up there?" And I was, and I had been making a TV show, but somehow it was like, I don't know. I thought it was like on a closed circuit to my mom's house or something. Like I didn't, re- I wasn't really conceiving of how it was going everywhere. And you know, and people, you know, there are some people who just want to be famous. Da, 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 and then often doesn't make your life better. It makes it worse. It, it, it's it can be uncomfortable. You know, it's it's a there is a price to it. Yeah, there is a price to it, and you can you can have some effect on regulating the price that it is because you can, which I think the big thing from my experience is protecting the self of yourself that isn't public property, because so many people serve up everything. Here it is. Here's me. Let me just pull out all the drawers, and you ransack it and use whatever you want. And, and I, you know, I worry about like friends of mine that sort of have a public persona with their spouse, you know, like, yeah, kind man, of, that it's must scary be to me because, yeah, it's just like, at what point does your marriage become a product as opposed to, uh, you know, a core of who you are existentially? I mean, really, if I could just make these paintings anonymously, you know, and might, might be, I mean, the paintings and the music are what I really care about, you know. I mean, and I can I can I can tell a funny story, and so that works. But well, do you have what do you what do you when people ask you like advice? What do you you know? Do you have advice for people? What kind of advice? Well, you tell me. Like it doesn't whether it's work advice or life advice. Like like what do you find useful? I try to be in the moment. I try to generate as much love as possible, and everything else follows from there. Really, I try to live in the moment and try to generate love. I you know that sounds corny, but I really do do that. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Too late. Too late. Too late. Well, John, that's a, that's a beautiful place to leave this. All right. So thank you for Thanks coming for on the podcast, John. I really appreciate it. Oh, let's and not good luck. end it. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, watch watch Painting with John. It's just such a beautiful uh, escape from yourself. 
and and it really shows um there's a lot of warmth in it. It's a very warm. It makes it makes I you hope feel so, good. Man. That, yeah. That's, yeah. Who would think I would do a relaxing, feel good show? But I guess I did. You know. Um, <laughs> nice to see you again. I'll see you in it's twenty great years. To see I you. guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time on the Three Questions. Thanks for having me. Andy. Big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galit Sahayek, and engineered by Will Becton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.